Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. Today, we have a special guest for you guys. His name is Elliot Clark. And I first came across Elliot's work when he actually... uh, critiqued my book along with Jonathan Worthington, who we talked about in the first season. And I so love the thoughtful critique that he and Jonathan uh, gave the book that I said, I got to be friends with these guys. And so uh, here's my chance. I get to talk to Elliot. Elliot Clark uh, earned his Master of Divinity from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He served in East Asia as a cross-cultural church planner along with his wife and children. He works now with Training Leaders International, where he equips indigenous church leaders overseas and diaspora pastors within the U.S. He has authored a couple of books. One is Evangelism as Exiles, Life on Mission as Strangers in Our Own Land, and recently, Mission Affirmed, Recovering the Missionary Motivation of Paul. Elliot, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now, when we interview people, we read these bios that give a little introduction, but there's nothing like hearing from you. Uh, tell people more about yourself, something I haven't said. What makes you tick? Yeah, so I am a middle-aged man, but I still kind of look at myself as a, a young pastor's kid. <laughs> I grew up in a pastor's <laughs> home in the Midwest, and uh, that's just in my blood, I guess. I was in church my whole life, watching my dad and... Um, so when I think about who I am, it's it's deeply connected to my upbringing in a pastor's home, which for me, I, I know it's not perfect for everyone, but for me, was a wonderful experience of exposure to the gospel from an early age, seeing Christ-likeness modeled, uh, certainly not perfection, but a love for Christ and the church. And I think that continues on into my uh, heart, my desire. My wife and I both uh, knew from it a relatively young age from probably our teen years separately. We both knew we were interested in overseas or cross-cultural ministry. Yeah. I just feel like from, from childhood, uh, this is something that's been important to me. And so as I, as I write, as I minister, I'm, I'm thinking about the church. I'm thinking about pastoral ministry, even as I, as I try to think about missions. You know, it's interesting that you say that I didn't know all that background, but as I read your work, there is a sense of, depth, personalness, that you own this material that you're writing about. It's not merely theoretical. You're not merely repeating something you learned in seminary. Do you think that comes from being a pastor's kid or what What do you think fuels that? Uh, I, I certainly think that's, prob- that's probably part of it. And I've seen, I've grown up uh, both seeing missionaries come through the local church and give reports. I've also kind of been on the other end there, giving the reports and, and being sent out. I think it's also perhaps uh, comes through from from being in kind of pastoral ministry overseas. It, it wasn't traditional pastoral ministry in any way, but working with people, watching them go through difficult uh, situations, circumstances, face suffering, uh, that certainly, I guess, flavors uh, some of my perspective. Uh, it could it could not affect me, obviously. Yeah. Well, I invited you on to the show today because your recent book, Mission Affirm, really captured my attention. Again, for those of you who didn't catch it, the book is called Mission Affirmed, Recovering the Missionary Motivation of Paul. And despite my years uh, in missions and being a theologian who talks a lot about missions, I don't read a lot of general missions books, you know, the kind that said, hey, go reach the nation, because, well, I'm already for that. And I find there's a lot of repetition. Uh, I tend to read a little bit more specialized books. But when I read this, I just couldn't put it down. And my oldest daughter, who doesn't always take my recommendations, saw my enthusiasm and and bought it even before I finished it and is now recommending it to people. Um, And so. it definitely captured my attention. And what motivated you to write this book? Well, I mean, that's 
it's a loaded question because the books the book is all about motivation <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah no pun intended <laughs> uh and it's it's specifically about paul's what i consider to be paul's driving motivation to receive god's approval on the final day so um i suppose that that motivation influences me as well in my work but it's really the driving heart behind this book is to see missionaries and the churches that support them find that motivation as well and with a goal ultimately of of seeing god's affirmation and commendation on the final day i i'm just convinced that was significant for paul and it should be for us as well uh, but of course there's a subtext to that goal uh there's a subtext that i'm concerned there are some missionaries some practices uh and then the churches that are supporting them that may not be so confident may not have reason for confidence that they will ultimately receive that approval if uh, they are doing things that are contrary to uh, God's design or uh, what he's demonstrated in the, the model and example of Paul. So, you know, as I look at missions book, most, I think most writers take Paul's missionary motive as self-evident. They'll say something like, well, God loves people. I should love people or people need, need Jesus or, and then it's just, the perfunctory comment after a page or two, and then you go on to uh, the real stuff, uh, you know, but you have a whole yeah. book on this. Um, what was it that you were seeing or not seeing in other literature as you said, hold on, we need to, we need to slow down and focus just on the motivation piece. Well, I, I can't remember what really got this started, but I, I do remember sitting down and reading something by Eckhart Schnabel, which is a, a theologian that I highly respect. Uh, where he lists 10 motivations for the Apostle Paul. And the desire for God's approval wasn't one of them. And mm. as I had just personally been studying First uh, and Second Corinthians primarily, this for if anyone picks up this book, they're going to find out right away that I uh, look deeply at the Corinthian correspondence in, in this book, and, and specifically Second Corinthians. And from that perspective, I just, I see Paul talking about his desire for commendation, depending on how you translate it, praise and affirmation from God, uh, his desire to boast on the final day and have others boast in him. And those are in some ways radical things to say. Uh, we, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, in some ways, Paul's motivation is so obvious. We miss some of the other ways he talks about it. Yeah. I mean, we know he's, absolutely passionate for the glory of God. We know he wants to see more and more people come to the knowledge of Christ and get to places where the gospel hasn't been preached. That's kind of obvious, I think. But we've somehow missed this motivation, which, as I started looking at it, is throughout his writings, not just the Corinthian correspondence. And uh, I, th I see it in Peter and Jesus as well. Okay, so let's... If you were to summarize, you get your elevator pitch and you say, what is this book about? You, you could say, yeah, about Paul's missionary motive, but you've kind of hinted at it. But I want to, in case people are missing it, you're not just merely saying our motive is to glorify God. You're saying something that some people might think is counterintuitive. So how, how, how would you say it succinctly for them, your thesis that you're arguing here? Sure. Uh, well, I think Paul's desire for God's approval on the final day is what directed his missionary ambition. So, and when I say approval, I would fit in all sorts of complimentary terms, affirmation, praise, commendation, glory, reward, honor from God as being a significant motivation. Uh, but, but a, a kind of a nuance in the book though, is this wasn't just a, something that motivated his mission, it also regulated it. Mm. It it was a controlling influence, not just a compelling uh, impulse. So it's gonna it's gonna play out in all sorts of practical scenarios uh, where this affects how he makes his decisions in the missionary uh, advance of the gospel. I'll tell you that right there, the whole fact that this particular motivation ends up being a regulatory idea that regulates his practice in practical ways totally caught me off guard. You know, I, I read the first little bit and I thought, you know, okay, well, how much more can he take this? You know, 
And then sure enough, you didn't just reiterate yourself like a lot of books that each chapter is really distinct and but yet really inter, interweaves and repeats in, in certain ways the theme from a different perspective. So it's fresh and reinforcing. Now, before we're going to jump into some text because uh, I don't want people to take our word for it because it doesn't matter what we say. It's a matter what the text says. Yeah. So what would you say to people who take issue with the fact that that you're saying that people should seek rewards uh, and uh, related to that, that people would get different rewards? I mean, aren't we all getting rewards the same? Those are two different issues that could rub people wrong. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm going to answer your question. Absolutely. But I have to say, I the book doesn't provide a comprehensive defense of those two statements. I mean, I believe them. I believe that, and and the introduction in the in the first chapter try to make the a short case that we can expect differing rewards, and that the reward is significantly related to uh, receiving glory from God uh, on the final day. And so uh, how that plays out, uh, we can look at a few texts. I would just maybe say this up front. It's not ultimate glory to us that terminates in us, but as God has created us in the beginning to reflect his glory as his image bearers, crowned with glory and honor, as Psalm 8 will say, Romans 8 then picks that up and Honestly, it's it's in your book if somebody wants to look at your book on <laughs> Romans. Uh, but ultimately, what we find in Romans 8 is in the new creation. Mm. This is God's purpose that his glory would be magnified as his children, as humanity is restored to have and share and reflect and see his glory. So uh, it's not these aren't disconnected or at odds with one another, our, our glory from God and ultimate glory to God. Uh, to give some, I guess, some practical texts uh, to look at for your listeners, Second Corinthians one, right out of the bat, right, right off the bat, uh, Paul gives his reason for writing this letter. As people will know, probably Second Corinthians offers a defense of Paul's apostleship and his approach to ministry. Just as an aside, I mean, I think uh, this is a forgotten missionary motivation. I think Second Corinthians is the forgotten mystological text of the New Testament. So, outside of the Gospels and Acts, I don't, I don't think there's another text in Scripture that's more practical for us to consider uh, missiology than Second Corinthians. That, that's my opinion. I can't prove you it. You know, I would uh, absolutely agree with that. I really fell in love with Second Corinthians because one of my mentors was Scott Haithman, who is okay, yeah, who really does a lot of work in that and. That book never gets old. It's just so rich. Yeah, yeah. So Paul Paul starts out Second Corinthians one, uh, verse fourteen. He he says he wants to boast in the on the final day. Um, and, and just for starters, that sounds ridiculous coming from Paul because we all know, or you know, if we've if we're a good Protestant, it's been drilled in our head. Uh, Paul will never boast. Well, it just Second Corinthians challenges that a little bit. Uh, and Paul, at the very least, if not boasting now, he certainly wants to boast in the final day, and he wants the Corinthians to boast in him. So, uh, and to clarify, and, boast because you and I both know mm -hmm. people will take that as like bragging, and you know what's up. Sure, you know uh, the idea is rejoicing, celebrating. It's a sense of of you know uh, exuberant, like yes, you know. Uh, yes, and this isn't, and, and, and a, an important thing to note here is this is not isolated individualistic boasting. This is collective, mutual celebration, mm. one for the other, the church for the apostle, the apostle for his the fruit of his work. He he wants that on the final day. He brings that up again in later chapters, uh, and so that's. And I say in the book, I think this is what Paul does in his letters, even where where he gives thanks to God in the presence of other churches for the the faith and hope and love that he sees evidenced in his uh, congregations that he's helped to establish. So I think that's what boasting involves: mm -hmm. uh, grateful, rejoicing in God 
to the honor of others. Um, and then Second Corinthians 4, this is probably a disputed text. I, I, I can't defend it here. We have to read the book. But uh, Paul says that he's undergoing intense affliction, affliction uh, that he calls light and momentary. <laughs> but that <laughs> intense affliction was preparing for him mm. the weight of glory. Mm. Uh, so there's a direct connection and correlation, I think, between what Paul is suffering and the glory he expects to experience because of it. Uh, and then uh, texts like 2 Corinthians 10, verse 18, Paul says he, he's looking forward to God's commendation, God's mm. praise. Mm. The, of course, all of us know the affirming word, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, yeah. He's looking forward to a day when he will receive God's approval. Uh, what you know? What he says to Timothy to strive so that as a worker he can be approved before God, not not ashamed on the final day. Mm. So there's strong honor shame yeah. dynamics there that he wants to come to the end of the race and receive the crown of God's praise. So, you know, all these uh, words that are related, they're not the same, but boasting, glory, commendation, approval, reward, uh, they're, they're woven throughout the Corinthian correspondence. Yeah, and to, to let people know, as I was looking at your book, you also draw from the Gospels, you draw from you know, Paul's other letters, Matthew, um, you really make this argument really well. So, uh, and then you even pull from historical figures like C.S. Lewis and, and Jonathan Edwards. One of my, some of my favorite sermons is what you, you cite about the varying degrees of reward. All right. So let's get into the text a bit so that, you know, why do you say what from the text that God's approval or his honor is Paul's missionary motivation? Um, well, just to, to go back to the ones I just mentioned in, in second Corinthians one, Paul appeals to the Corinthians to support his mission through prayer. But why? He, he motivates them with the hope of thanksgiving, recognition, and that mutual boasting. So, you know, just practically, if you support my ministry, both in the advance of the gospel or in the support of the poor in Jerusalem, what's going to happen? It, what's going to happen are those who are recipients of grace through you, through your gifts, you know, indirectly, you know, through me, you are going to be the beneficiary. It's to your benefit, mm. Paul will say in Second Corinthians 8, uh, to your benefit. So this isn't, uh, you know, altruistic giving. Mm. It's, it's giving for the hope of recognition mm. and rejoicing on the final day. Here's, here's another, I guess, piece of the puzzle. This isn't simply a motivation for Paul. But he's going to give this motivation to the churches that support him as well. And then Paul says, again, 2 Corinthians 1, if, if you want to look at it, verses 11 through 14 is significant. At the very outset of the letter, Paul says he conducts his ministry with single-mindedness and, and sincerity, genuineness, a good conscience. So on that basis, he's able to commend himself. And on that basis, he assumes God will ultimately commend him. Very similar language in 2 Corinthians 4. At the first few verses of that chapter, he refuses to tamper with God's word. He's not going to manipulate people in his ministry uh, or manipulate God's word because he wants to be commendable. And, and then a little bit further in chapter 4, he says he's willing to suffer, even die for their sake, for the advance of the gospel. But what's, what's the motivation? It's not just love for the, the nations, <laughs> generic love for mm -hmm. the nations. Not that that's bad. But he says, I'm willing to do that because I anticipate pre being presented with you on the final day. Mm -hmm. And so having this hope is, is why we speak, he says. Yeah. Believing this, we speak. We speak the gospel under threat of death because he anticipates this mutual presenting before the Lord on the final day. So that's, you know, that's Paul's statements. Uh, but one of the things that got my attention right away was you talk about 
this change of plans when he's writing the Corinthians mm-hmm. and how he had this open door for gospel advancement. And you think, mm-hmm. yes, he's going to run right on through and bring everybody he can. And he just says, no. And, and you yeah. go, excuse me, what? Like, you'd be, you'd be fired if you were hired by some mission organizations if we're not <laughs> taking that. So that caught my attention and I'm um, illustrating your point. Yeah. Can you share that? Sure. When, when does Paul leave the city? That's a, it's a, just a very practical question. And why? In the vast majority of cases that we know, again, we don't have every situation Paul ever uh, experienced, but from what we know in the, the record in Acts, we know that Paul left cities for basically two reasons. <laughs> he was kicked out or ran for his life. That's one. That's kind of an obvious uh, reason to leave. Or he he left a city because he discerned that a city he had previously been to, the believers were, uh, their faith was in danger. What we don't have, to my knowledge, is an example of Paul leaving a city in order to intentionally advance the gospel to new places um, without either being run out or um, or because he's concerned for the faith of believers. Uh, I'm talking again about, maybe should rephrase this a little bit, um, the intentional planned departure outside of his normal travel schedule, mm-hmm. okay? So he's in Ephesus. We know that there's an open door for ministry, but there are many adversaries, he says. And we, he leaves Ephesus to go to Corinth because the Corinthians are struggling in their faith. Same thing happens in Troas. An open door for the gospel. We expect, we fully expect, Paul experiencing an open door is going to just, I don't know, preach the daylights out of that city. <laughs> whatever you <laughs> want to, whatever you imagine he's going to do. Uh, of course, that's he's on the front edge of the gospel advance, and an open door is before him. He's going to stay, and Paul says, "No, actually, I, I left Troas because the Corinthians were struggling in their faith, and Titus is coming to bring a report, and Paul's worried because uh, the fruit of his work is in danger." Hmm. Yeah, and it's a similar is something I pointed out in, in, in Romans, Paul's has this, we might today, people say UPGs, you know, they see these unreached people in, in Spain is what people might say today. But you know what? I'm going to go the opposite direction to Jerusalem yeah, where there's a lot of people have already heard. Uh, and you, so you, you, scratch, you see, they hear that story and you hear the story you're talking about and you just scratch your head going, what was that deeper motivation besides getting more numbers. <laughs> yeah. And, and I say this, I guess, at the beginning of the book, Paul's just a far more complex character than we like to portray him as. Uh, it's easy if we can just uh, say, oh yeah, this is this pioneer, uh, always on the forefront of the gospel advance. Well, no, he writes Romans 15 and his desire to go to Spain from Corinth on his final visit there. After writing to them, in 2 Corinthians 10, and telling them, I can't go to new fields, and I won't go to new fields until I'm confident of your faith. Mm. And so, uh, first of all, Spain, the, the desire to go to Spain doesn't happen in a vacuum. It, it happens only after he's, once he's in Corinth for the third time, and is apparently some come to some confidence in their security. Uh, but then, yeah, you mentioned it. He sends Romans at the hands of Phoebe, and he goes the opposite direction and won't get to Rome for at least two years. Uh, so, and won't get to Spain for many more. So anyway, I think we can't just look at Romans 15 as paradigmatic for how Paul always operated. If anything, Second Corinthians 10 is the necessary correlation to Romans 15, that you have to read it in context of Paul saying, I yeah. can't go to Spain. Yeah, you know, uh, people may not until realize you guys it, get your act together. But it, what you're saying, if is the seed bed, if that's I'm going to mix metaphors, the seed for blowing up every sort of missionary training I ever participated in, 
you know, uh, overseas or, or whatnot, that it's like they just can't coexist. At least in my experience, I've been around. I'm sure there's other missionary training, but but this has practical ramifications. Uh, can you tease out some of the practical implications of having God's honor or being commended by God as a missionary motive? Sure. So Romans 15, again, I mentioned it again because it's such a central text to the way people view Paul and understand his ambition. Uh, because he says, I make it my ambition to go where the gospel hasn't been preached. Uh, but we have to understand, even in Romans 15, Paul says that he wants to be proud of his work on the final day, which, again, for us just seems ludicrous, almost blasphemous but he wants to be proud of his work on the final day and he wants to have an offering of the gentiles that's acceptable to god and you can look at that language throughout old and new testament the idea of having something as a priestly offering to give to god uh, which is pleasing to him which uh, delights god and for paul I think he believes, he's convinced that what delights God is, you know, to use Romans language, the obedience of faith of the nations. It's the, it's churches that are grounded in the truth, faithful to scripture, um, who are able to repel false teaching. And so, uh, again, to be very, to just to be very practical, the situation in Corinth is such that an apostle has established a church. That church is growing. That church is reproducing. It's even planting other churches. It is a movement, if we want to call it that. But Paul isn't willing to move on if that movement is in jeopardy. So just because you have a church or even a group of churches overseas that, that are growing, that are reproducing, that are, um, that doesn't guarantee that you have an offering that you can present on the final day and be proud of. Yeah, if those, saw, if those movements, one, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I, uh, I saw at one point you even said, having the spirit in the Bible is no guarantee for success for a church. Mm -hmm. Well, those are about fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Corinthians had had both. Here, I, if I could pick another uh, fight, I guess. I'm not trying to pick fights. <laughs> in, in Paul's, again, his writing to the Corinthians, he says, I can't give you deep teaching. I can't give you meat. I have to give you milk because you're not spiritual, or I don't know if you're spiritual. That is, I don't know if you have the spirit. How can he say that to a church that's established, growing, and reproducing? Hmm. So if, if they're not demonstrating the fruit of the spirit, and they are questioning the gospel and its apostle, then Paul's saying, I don't, I don't know if I can trust you just because, you know, all those things, you've ticked all those boxes. And furthermore, uh, the the model that we have in so many mission agencies uh, that are espoused by so many agencies these days is uh, simple and reproducible. We want models that uh, are kind of lowest common denominator, which then can be easily transferred and passed on. And that's almost the exact opposite of Paul. Hmm. He's He reserves simple for those who he's not sure have the spirit but the ones he those he is convinced have the spirit he's going to give them solid meaty teaching so i, I think we just have so many things backwards uh, yeah these one days. one of the ways that i kept thinking of it is the people that you challenge most seem to be those who really focus on quantity that is numbers speed uh you know, that that really emphasize that, whereas you tend to say, yeah, that's well and good, but what's the quality of our work? 
mm-hmm. is it sustainable? Are we building towards longevity? And so to put it simple, like a quality dynamic. And so yeah. some people might say, hey, you're overpressing or you're, you're creating a false dichotomy or separation between quality and quantity. Do you really have to pick one or the other? Or, mm-hmm. or you know, what do you say to them? I say, well, I, I like to think that I'm picking at both sides uh, here on this issue. So those who want speed and quantity, I say, well, Paul, yes, he's absolutely urgent and pressing to new areas. I would never want to suggest that he doesn't care about getting the gospel to those who haven't heard. Absolutely. Definitely agree with that. I just think Paul's a little more of a complex character than we sometimes say. And for those who've heard the gospel, who've received it, he want to make he wants to make sure they're actually standing fast in the gospel. And that implies more than just making sure they're reading the Bible and obeying whatever they find. Um, for those on the other side, I'm, I'm grew up, was trained in the Reformed tradition. So I've heard a lot successes is measured by faithfulness or, or faithfulness is the measure of success. And I don't see Paul actually uh, saying that either. I see, I see him caring deeply about fruitfulness. It's not just quality, the quality of my work. It's the quality of the fruit of my work mm. that matters to Paul. And so, um, yeah, he, he's in some ways, uh, he doesn't necessarily bow to either perspective. He wants to win Jew. He wants to win Gentile and he wants to win the weak, which I take to mean first Corinthians nine in context. He's concerned with reaching those already reached <laughs> who he's not sure are strong in the gospel. So Paul wants to go. He, he he can go both ways. He can go to new places and focus on new believers, but he's also also what he says in Second Corinthians: always anxious mm. for the church, always anxious. Uh, so it's not it's not one or the other. I would just say it's both. Yeah, I've sat in several meetings where assessments were being done for. Uh, movements, church planting movements, and people look, evaluate what's gone wrong, what's gone well, so forth. And I don't think I ever sat in on an assessment of a, of a movement that did not talk about the serious problems theologically, the amount of cults that were spurring, you know, that were popping up uh, to the point that you wonder if people weren't doing a church planting movement, but almost a cult planting movement, mm. because uh, the, that was popping up uh, more mm-hmm. than it seemed. It seemed at, sometimes it felt like more than anything else. And so I think maybe that's what you're getting at. It's like, yes, we want quantity, but if you're just doing quantity of, say, fake groups or false teaching groups, not churches, then are you actually doing quantity? Yeah, exactly. I, I just want to say both. Maybe yeah. that's a cop out for some people, but even as Paul, again, the timeline here is critical. When he says Romans in Romans 15 that he's fulfilled his ministry um, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, if I'm getting yeah. that, that correct. Yeah. He he's just written to the Corinthians that he's constantly anxious for all the churches. So it wasn't a fulfilled, like, oh, wash my hands of this. I'm on to new places. Uh, I think missionaries have to be quite uh, complex in their approach where they're pushing into gospel sowing, seed sowing, new evangelistic efforts, pushing into new fields, working that front. Uh, if you want to use the war analogy, you've got it. It's a multi-front attack. You can't just assume that you've won certain ground and it's going to stay in our territory. It had you, you're working both sides uh, as you both fronts, as yeah, you're I heard, in this effort. I heard somebody once say who was critical of a lot of this push for speed that people who propagate, you know, movement, movement, movement at all costs were it's almost as if they were advocating giving birth to babies, but then they would just abandon them on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. you know, because like, well, you got these new lives. It's like saying our goal is converts, not disciples. And it seems like you're saying, I want as many disciples as possible, which 
it seems to be that both and that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But, but I think in Paul's mind, what good is it if I have so many converts, but what I have to present on the final day uh, are empty conversions or false yeah. faith uh, or those churches who have been ransacked by false teaching. So, so this is pretty encouraging to people who have worked in hard access areas, Central Asia, much of Northern Africa, so forth and so on, where you may go years and years and years seeing very little fruit. But part of what you're saying is that, but what you do have, what are you doing? How are you investing in it? Does that, does that sound right? Yeah, that does. I I wouldn't want to just uh, again as i mentioned i'm from a reformed background i i would call myself reformed but i see sometimes uh, those who are from that background almost casual and comfortable in the lack of results the lack of fruit i don't see that in paul either so i just want i want to be as as balanced as i can be <laughs> in my application of what i see it to be the the example Paul gives us of uh, being of caring both about quantity and quality, mm. uh, faithfulness and fruitfulness. Now, again, the fruitfulness ultimately doesn't matter if I'm not faithful. Mm. There is there is a difference. Uh, the quantity doesn't matter if there is no quality. Mm. Gotcha. Well, let's jump into some of the implications that you draw out. And I'll, you know, here's a leading question, because I know what you're going to say, but it, I think this will come to a shock to a lot of people. Would Paul endorse the goal of establishing self-sustaining, self-supporting, and self-propagating churches? Uh, you know, I don't think so. To, to the best of my reading of Paul, I say that, you know, humbly, uh, that may seem like missiological heresy to some people. Uh, and I admit I could be wrong, just honestly. I, I may not be right on this. Well, unpack why you say that and how that's connected to your thesis. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do hint at it in the book. I, I may not give a full defense of it, but I think this is a flawed aim. Uh, I don't think churches, national churches that are established by missionaries should be isolated, independent, self-sufficient that we re release and are disconnected from. I don't see that in Paul's model, uh, nor do I think churches that are sending, sending churches, uh, sending missionaries should be independent, self-sustaining congregations. What I see is, again, that there's this collectivist mentality in Paul that wants to have an, an interaction among these churches that wants to have these churches receiving from one another a, a relationship of giving and receiving, not not saying there's equal giving and equal receiving, but uh, it. What I don't see is Paul uh, just releasing churches on their own. Um, I recently read a blog post by Asiri Fernando from Sri Lanka, um, and he was making a similar case. He, he didn't. <laughs> I'm not saying he's in agreement with me on this issue, um, but but he he makes it a, a similar case that uh, that I really resonate with on the importance of dependence, and I would just tweak it a little bit. I I I don't think we're talking about independent or dependent churches, but interdependent churches. Hmm. Uh, that's just the pattern I see throughout the New Testament, interdependent missionaries even. I don't know what this might look like, but we've had a model for now quite a long time in the West that missionaries are fully funded and self-sufficient themselves. Uh, and I just wonder if there isn't something to Paul's model of receiving support along the way. Uh, and it's co it's connected to my thesis in this way, because Paul doesn't just see the final day as what he might attain in receiving honor from God, but it's again, what he sees 
All of those connected to his ministry, the givers, the receivers, all participating in the joy, crown, and rejoicing of that day. So, yeah, it's complicated. Uh, this obviously would require a whole different book, which I'm not going to write. But um, <laughs> I do I do have my questions about this assumption that, that the goal of missions are these churches that don't need one another or don't need us. Yeah, it does require a different sort of thinking. Uh, I'm with an organization now called Mission One, and partnership is everything. And so even when we evaluate projects and how they're going, the idea is constantly, okay, what did we learn from them? What did they add into these projects or these uh, cooperative efforts that we never could have added? Like, And really yeah. evaluating, is this a genuine partnership rather than just a, hey, we push you along and you just do what we want to do? Um, and that's a criteria for success is, is there a mutuality here? Yeah. So you think that it's it's it goes it cuts both ways it, it cuts uh, as far as do we as Westerners those uh, you know those of us who are missionaries do we have something to learn from other cultures and Christians around the world absolutely but the other reality is we we think we have something to offer as well um, mm. and and some in recent years sometimes you'll hear people who engage in mission and all they can talk about is what they got out of it. And mm. you wonder, did, did we actually provide anything to the locals? Now, so you, you really hit the, on this idea without going colonial, you emphasize the fact that we actually might ironically be moving towards uh, over minimizing our, the presence of missionaries. Uh, explain that just a little bit. You've already touched on it a little bit, but yeah, in a, in a post-colonial world, uh, Western missionaries are absolutely concerned about uh, minimizing our influence and being careful about uh, imposing outside views or theology on others. Uh, so there are a number of missiological voices calling for not just self-supporting, self-sustaining congregations, but as you, I'm sure you know, uh, your listeners, self-theologizing churches. Uh, I'm, I'm completely uh, not in favor of colonialism, and I am completely in favor of national believers developing rich, robust theological resources that are culturally relevant. So I, I need to put that on the table. But, but at the same time, it's not colonialism to make disciples. Mm. Um, and we don't do missions in a vacuum. As early as the first century, Paul's calling the Corinthians out and telling them, look, guys, you're doing stuff that no believers do, and these, this isn't even heard of in the churches. Mm. So already there's some kind of Catholicity, if I can use that term, where Paul says, "We, you have diverted from the apostolic witness and the witness of the churches. So... As that applies today, I mean, I think we have to be able as missionaries to uh, communicate something of that tradition and witness. Um, otherwise, we are robbing, I think, national churches of a treasure. I think we're also just, uh, it, it's in some ways demeaning to them to think we can't present, of course, in, a, in an appropriate way, but to present things like church history or historical theology and let them sift that teaching. I mean, they they have minds and ability mm. to mm -hmm. be able to do that. And and we are in some ways, I think, you know, to use your analogy again, we've we've got orphan churches all around the world who don't have theological <laughs> parents yeah. or brothers and sisters. I frequently thought I, when people talk about we need to keep it simple, simple, simple. And don't overwhelm them with too much, you know, method or theology or whatever else is. I've always felt kind of offended on their behalf going, that's so patronizing, as if they can't learn, as if they they are too beneath us to uh, learn what we've learned and go beyond us. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, we're not calling for blind following. We're, but But if we can't, 
say something about something to that effect that we have something to offer mm. you can learn from us as we follow christ okay if we're if we divert don't follow us um and and i get the other piece of the mm. puzzle i would just add is we are imposing views whether we want to or not like even even the efforts to not impose mm. our perspective and teaching is itself an imposition of our perspective and teaching so there, there's no mm. such there's no such thing as oh wow yeah um a post-colonial world where we we completely uh fall in the shadows and doesn't it doesn't affect the church yeah oh that totally sets me up to the next thing i want to ask you about and this is this subtle implicit invisible type of colonialism this was a such a true but clever uh, point that you make. I'll read a quote from page 78 in your book. It says, I've come to consider some of the ways Western missionary colonization still happens. Sure, we're not, we're no longer exporting pews and pipe organs. We're beyond that. But we do import our comforts and our fears. We implicitly inculcate others with our timidity, secrecy, contingency, and luxury. Here's the, how you conclude. The great danger of cultural colonization isn't gone. It's only changed. We're still making disciples in our image. And then in that same context, you talk about how we spread the virus of prosperity theology. Man, that's, that's some heavy words. Um, can you unpack that a little bit for people? Yeah, I mean, I, even as you read that, that sounds really strong. <laughs> and uh, I... I uh, I believe what I said, um, but but I can imagine people uh, might be discouraged by hearing that. I just am convinced that influence is inevitable. Discipleship happens. It's like parenting. You don't mm. you don't stop being a parent if you kind of uh, check out. <laughs> if you're on your phone all yeah. day as a parent of a toddler, you haven't stopped parenting. You're just parenting in a different way. And so I think we um, we must be careful about, and I, I'm stating this as a missionary who failed over and over again in this regard. I know this because this is in some ways my story. I know the temptation to live in a difficult place, but always be on the lookout for the best medical care, the best education options, the best you know, the easiest, the most comfortable living situation, even just finding nice restaurants that I can afford because I'm an American, that, that kind of influence, I don't think it's necessarily uh, in your face or, or apparent always, but I would be surprised if that doesn't have a very strong effect on local believers. So, I mean, one of the very practical things I've seen, I've had missionaries come to me and say, we're frustrated. The local believers, they're coming, you know, people are coming to faith, praise the Lord, but they're, they're silent. They don't want to tell their family or they're um, not willing to suffer, or they assume that, oh, now that they're a Christian, they're going to, they're going to be rich or they're going to, we're going to offer them a job or you know, who knows what, but in kind of subtle ways, I, I don't know that I've ever told someone into their face, but I'm just wondering in the back of my mind, well, isn't that kind of what they've seen from you? They've seen a reticence to be open about your faith. They've seen secrecy. They've seen contingency. They've seen a, a desire for comfort in your life decisions. Why wouldn't they yeah. do the same? Um, and we're we're frustrated because why aren't these indigenous believers more passionate for God, for Christ and willing to suffer. And it's like, well, maybe this is what they learned. So, Yeah. The, the phrase, you think you said it earlier, discipleship happens, like life happens. It, it's happening no matter what. And so we sometimes think we are only doing discipleship when we're being very intentional and we have a program and we're doing it between the hours of six to eight at night or whatever the time is. Yeah. And you're like, no, just our presence is Disciple making. It's just what kind of disciples are we making? Yeah. Uh, I have a one last content question here uh, before we do some closing stuff. Um, you know, I could easily see somebody, you know, hearing you and saying, 
you know, we don't need to care about what other people think. We just need to care about what God thinks. But for anybody who turns to Second Corinthians, it sure does seem like Paul cares a whole lot about what the Corinthians think. And he really does want their approval. So why does Paul seem so concerned with the Corinthians' approval if he's so concerned with God's approval? <laughs> uh, well, I kind of tried to take a book to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll take a few seconds to try and answer it here. It, it's it's a yeah. As I said, and throughout this podcast and throughout the book, Paul's just a complex character, and he his example uh, pushes against any kind of neat, tidy uh, box we might put it in. But um, yeah, Paul says First Corinthians four. I don't really care what you think about me. It's it's. It's only God's commendation on the final day that matters. Even what I think about myself uh, is kind of nothing to Paul. It's what God thinks. And yet he absolutely is concerned for the approval of the Corinthians. He's absolutely concerned, I think, for the approval of all of the churches. Uh, why is that? Well, I think because, one, as the Corinthians began to question Paul, as the apostle, they, along with that, they were questioning the gospel. And what's quite fascinating, can't go into it here, but Paul says basically, our yes is yes, our no is no. You can trust us like you trust God, which is, again, one of these absurd statements that Paul makes. But I think he's concerned that if they're starting to doubt him, it's going to, it's going to, almost inevitably lead to them doubting God and, and the gospel. So he wants to demonstrate, he takes great pains to open his heart for them to see, look, look, this is what I've done. This is why I've done it. I want you to know it's all for your love. I've, I, <laughs> I've sent you representatives. I've visited myself. I've commissioned letters to you. I, I, I love you. He wants them to know that. And he wants them to return that love. He wants them to be committed to him. And I, I, at some point in the book, I say, I think that's just the way life is. You don't pour yourself out for people and then not care what happens to them. You, you mm. absolutely care. And part of that is you all wants them to return his love. He wants them to be able to rejoice in him on the final day, just as he does of them. Um, and that, that is a, a big question mark at this point in their relationship. He doesn't know if that's going to happen. Uh, but more broadly, I would just say, uh, again, I think this is part of Paul's ministry throughout. So he's the guys he selects to take the offering to Jerusalem. He makes sure they have a good reputation among all the churches, um, the people he tra travels with, same thing. The, he wants the Jerusalem, the pillars of Jerusalem, even the ones who he <laughs> apparently, according to Galatians, doesn't care what they think. Well, in a sense, he doesn't. But in a sense, he does. He wants, he wants the Jerusalem believers to see that the Gentile mission has been successful and God's spirit is at work among the nations. And so, yeah, he, he cares deeply for this church's approval of him because it reflects on everything. It reflects mm. on the gospel. It reflects on his ministry. Um, so why wouldn't he care? Yeah, we're talking about two different extremes here. There's the one where it's the rugged individualism says, I don't care what anybody thinks. I just do my own thing. On the other hand, I think another really serious problem in the church is this notion that and I've heard people say this explicitly in different ways, but if they don't approve of me or if they don't commend me, they won't uh, commend God. You know, they won't believe in God. If, mm -hmm. if I've heard pastors explicitly say, if I don't know the answers, then what will they think of God? Yeah. You know, which, but what I hear you saying is their Paul's desire for approval is only in as much as he is overtly and manifestly embodying the gospel such that rejection rejecting him necessarily requires rejecting the gospel because you could reject somebody for any number of reasons yes yeah. foul you know bad attitude whatever whatever, whatever. But that's not rejecting the gospel so this is that's quite the challenge to to, to us as workers yeah 
uh, again, it's you have to hold those in tension. I don't care what you think ultimately. Ultimately, I don't, Paul says. First Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. But absolutely, as a as a father to a child, I absolutely care that what you think about me and how you understand the way I've carried out my ministry. Um, if I'm calling you to follow me, I as I follow Christ, I absolutely want you to not question me. But yeah, you're right. As far as uh, I don't see in Paul some kind of um, some arrogant authoritarianism that uh, oh, you abandoned me, you you can't be whatever. It's it's yeah. if if they are questioning him and his gospel, the apostolic witness, then well, we got we got problems here. Yeah, well, we're getting to the end of our time. I want to respect uh, your time. Uh, so just ask real quick, uh, a few questions. Like, how are people responding to this book so far? I know it's relatively new, but what's the feedback so far? Honestly, I've received very little feedback and that's okay, but it's, it's a wait and see right well, now. It's still pretty new. Yeah. It's still pretty new. So I have a feeling you're going to get a whole lot of conversation generated from this book. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully positive, but um, I'm ready for otherwise. Now you kept talking about books that you're not going to write. You got any other projects in mind? Uh, I don't have anything in the works right now. I certainly have ideas. Um, I'm fascinated by God's heart for the nations. Um, I remember hearing a sermon by John Stott quite a few years ago uh, in person where he was talking about our God as a missionary God. And maybe someday I'll explore God's heart for the peoples of the world but uh, nothing's in the works and and honestly i'm happy that that's the case <laughs> <laughs> i get that our last question this is doing theology thinking mission where we look at the interaction uh and mutual contribution of missions within theology so however you want to answer it what does missions have to learn from theology and what does theology have to learn from missions what does missions have to learn from theology well uh, as you you obviously read this book, this book is really tries to be theological uh, focused, the, theologically driven, uh, biblically saturated. I I believe with all my heart that there's a a combination of pragmatism and fascination with sociology in mission that sometimes leaves theology to the to the back burner and i would love to see theology become the driving force of mission uh i don't think we lose anything when we make theology central i think we get again what i just said i think we get god's um overwhelming plan purpose and passion for the nations when we understand theology i, I think we get a robust ecclesiology i think we get really practical even contextualization uh things get answered when we we do deep theology as far as what does theology have to learn from mission i think that paul as a missionary <laughs> is the best theologian that we have in the church and i think mm. i'm inclined to think there's a reason for that mm. i think that when the, the best theologians are the ones who are pastors, who are missionaries, who are actively involved in frontline ministry and who have a heart for people. And those, those, uh, those passions, desires, and motivations end up, I think, flavoring theology in the appropriate way. So that's, that's my perspective. No, that's that's excellent. I frequently say that, you know, the Bible ought this shouldn't only inform our message, but also our methods. And I think that this book and everything you said really speaks to that, to how we go about. So thanks for joining us on this podcast. You have really given us a lot of things to think about. I'm sure that there'll be people who rewind this and listen to this right away again. <laughs> so thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Well, everyone, this is the end of uh, this conversation. 
I appreciate you joining us. If you would go on to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, wherever you get, uh, you're listening to this, go leave us a, a rating, uh, five stars, uh, leave comments, tell your friends about it so that we can keep the conversation going. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.